Couch Wisdom. Couch Wisdom. Hey, this is Jordan Rothline from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, Red Bull Radio's podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. Raised on the sounds of the East Coast underground freak punk scene, Dre Skull perceives urban music culture as a holistic affair and follows the paths of Don Waz, Rick Rubin, and Heavy D in terms of working with artists from across various fields. After lacing beats for heavy hitters such as Beanie Man, Popcon, and Pusha T, Dre Skull got asked by the mighty Major Laser to co-produce Snoop Dogg's reggae-fied reincarnation as Snoop Lion. In this episode of Couch Wisdom, recorded at the 2013 Red Bull Music Academy in New York, the Vibe Master talked about how he became one of Jamaica's most in-demand beatmakers. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit of Couch Wisdom. Our guest this afternoon is a DJ, producer from Brooklyn. Give him a very warm welcome. So you talk about this as if it was the most normal thing in the world. Yeah, I flew out to Jamaica 24 hours, just recorded Popcan, but... How did it actually happen that you would start working with these people? I mean, for, for those of you who don't know, like this guy is a huge deal. Like he's probably one of the three biggest reggae dancehall artists right now, arguably the biggest. So when did you first start working with artists of that caliber from Jamaica? Yeah, I mean, basically, as a producer, I've always wanted to be working with vocalists. And I think it was probably 2008. You know, I've been working with different people in the U.S. and, and trying to work with different people in the U.S. Um, but I had kind of made a decision that I wanted to reach out and try to work with some uh, Jamaican vocalists. So I think I, I basically, at that point, I had no real connections or, you know, I, I hadn't really been down to Jamaica to work. So basically through the internet, I found kind of some people in the world of dance hall. Um, What does that mean? Through the internet, <laughs> kind of some people? That's the <laughs> you know, I mean, essentially, you know, just asking around and getting kind of like, oh, you need to talk to this person. You need to talk to that person, that sort of thing. So, you know, through, through my work as a DJ and just talking with different DJs and then they tell me to call this person or email this person. So I, I basically was able to work with Sizzla and that was something where I, I didn't get to meet him and I still haven't met him. But, you know, basically I had a rhythm, sent it down through email and he sent, you know, Pro Tool session back and then I finished mixing and making the song and uh, I repeated that process with Vibes Cartel. And when I reached out to him, he was obviously a very big artist, but he still hadn't kind of hit his full peak. His track, Romping Shop, was just kind of building buzz in the U.S., and that went on to be like a, a Billboard uh, Hot 100 sort of radio play type of song that really built him up that much more. So it was a little bit fortuitous, but again, that was facilitated through the Internet. And uh, yeah, I guess basically he, he, he voiced a track for me called You Love... And, you know, I, I didn't really get to interact with him about the track too much. And I didn't know what I would be getting back. But he sent this track, You Love, which was very romantic, kind of love song, a little bit unusual for him. And it just kind of took on a life of its own and became a big hit on its own. So, I mean, ultimately, I, I guess I, it was very fortuitous and a bit lucky. Um, but through that song, then people started coming to me you know, emailing me and saying like, you know, we'd like to do this with you or do that with you. Um, and about maybe nine months or so after your love kind of had been out and had been building, I started going down to Jamaica. So I got to meet cartel and it kind of went from there. So you're originally from Massachusetts, right? 
Where exactly? Well, actually, I was born in Cleveland. Okay. And uh, my family moved around, but yeah, my, my uh, folks live up in Massachusetts. But I've been in Brooklyn for about eight years and was down in Philadelphia before that. Why did you move to Brooklyn? Because of the music or was there any other reason? No, it was just, it was kind of like a bunch of friends of mine were living in a warehouse in Brooklyn and a, a room opened up and it was just kind of like, you know, there wasn't a strong reason, but just like something that happened. So you've been making music for maybe like 10 years, a bit more, but your first release, if I'm not wrong, was in 2007-ish. And I think people started to notice more what you do in 2009 when you launched <coughs> your own label. So what did you do between 2002 and 2007? Well, I was I was doing a lot of different sorts of things in New York, but uh, in terms of like creative pursuits, I was, you know, when I moved into uh, Brooklyn, I actually moved into this four-story warehouse and pretty much everyone apart from myself, had gone to art school and was pretty engaged in the New York art world. And um, a number of us were doing different performance-type art or installation-y sort of things with video and uh, and audio. So that that was kind of my my original like creative output when I got to New York. And a lot of that work was kind of like reworking popular culture, say, with editing videos or or kind of reappropriating different pieces of music. And it was it was good and it was interesting and we had some levels of success although doing performance art you cannot really make too much money. <laughs> I mean there's there's nothing to sell it's a one time thing. So I mean there's a lot of effort and it's this ephemeral sort of thing that's basically gone. But but ultimately, you know, working in a group, people had different ideas about what, you know, was important to them or or so forth. And for me At a certain point, I realized, you know, I don't want to be like deconstructing culture like this popular music or popular, you know, films or, or or video content. I'd rather try to build it up from scratch. So I think that was the real shift for me. I just was like, I would rather be making popular music or, you know, or, or, or songs um, that have a life of their own instead of just like tinkering with someone else's songs and, and, and video. So the whole idea of making popular music, pop music, was that always something that was of interest to you? That's something that inspired you? Because obviously you came up through the whole club scene at large, you know, putting out, being a DJ producer, putting out 12-inch kind of releases and, and, and being somewhat of a household name in that world. And now you're working with people like Snoop Dogg and other people that I'm not allowed to mention. So that's quite a journey. It's quite a transition and I think very different types of working as well. So was that always your ambition to be that type of producer or did it just accidentally happen? That's that's a good question. I mean, I think making pop music, and I use that term very broadly, I mean, for me, working with these dance hall artists is kind of making popular music. I mean, it's within a genre, but, you know, it's songs that, that take on, you know, life as songs. And I, I guess that's really what I mean when I say pop music. But I think the draw there is partially just because I've, I felt like it was the hardest thing for me to do. And it was, it, it wasn't like, oh, I naturally, I know how to make pop music and that's what I'm going to go do. It was kind of like this challenge, like how, how is pop music made or how, as a producer, how do you make full songs and refine them? And, you know, so in a way it was just like the challenge of it that was somehow a draw. And, and I think just over the course of my life, songs, you know, have lived in my mind or in my life more than just like say a club track or something you know Th those can be amazing beautiful things and they have certain contexts where they work you know absolutely perfectly but 
I don't know, there's something about songs that had a, a real pull on me. So having worked with popular culture on a more theoretical level as, an, <coughs> as a performance artist, does that inform your work if you try and, and write a pop song these days? Or is this something that you try to keep away from your creative process and just do? Yeah, I mean, I'm not like, I don't come to music as a, as a super skilled musician. You know, I, I really, you know, I, I didn't kind of grow up playing piano or guitar or something like that in a really formal way. So I think for me, it started by looking at songs and having to kind of take them apart almost I don't know about theoretically, but just conceptually, like what is, you know, this is a verse. Okay. How many bars is that? this is a pre-chorus. Yeah. How many bars is that? And how does that lead into the chorus? So just really kind of analyzing music in that way. Um, and then trying to kind of analyze it enough that, that it becomes intuitive. And then you can, you know, take different things from different genres or different, different types of songs and kind of create new songs using some of that kind of DNA, if you will. Speaking of different genres, on your label you release quite a lot of different music. So yeah, you have a punk band, um, you put out some New Orleans bounce stuff, um, some clubby electronic stuff, obviously dancehall. So did you always listen to like all these kinds of genres or was there anything that attracted you in the first place? Yeah, I mean, I think probably like with my love of rap music and hip hop, that music has, has not, not always, but it's often uh, relied on sampling. And so in a way, I think that that's, when I look back, that's what I think happened is that, you know, whether it's like a, a, a DJ uh, premiere track or Public Enemy or whoever, I mean, depending on how you relate to, to music in general, I mean, for me as a producer, I'm kind of wondering, okay, where are those samples coming from? And, and then kind of tracing those roots to the original source material. Quite naturally, you're going to end up listening to, you know, a huge, a wide, wide range. I mean, I think many hip-hop producers will tell you, you know, I listen to everything. Yeah. And I think it's that kind of year of, of realizing that there's amazing music across all genres. So how did you actually start making music then? I think I, I started not with a computer, but with a four-track, you know, with a little uh, cassette tape. And, you know, in some ways there's a certain freedom to that because it's very limited what you can do. And and so, you know, you can you can record set the tape to play at different speeds and record at different speeds and do different kind of experimental stuff like that but you know i quickly graduated to a computer and really you know it's just as a as a producer just a solitary sort of pursuit you know kind of like became a a hobby and then a passion and you know now more of a career so yeah so what's your setup these days then Do you still try to limit yourself in terms of the equipment now that you probably have access to more professional and more um, well-staffed? Yeah, I mean, I, I know some producers are very kind of, they make a conceptual decision, like I'm making music with this drum machine and this synth, and that's like what this project is, yeah. or, you know, something very defined like that. I don't quite do that, but, you know, I, I pretty much strictly make music on a laptop, <laughs> whether I'm in a in a studio or in a at home or in a hotel room or any really anywhere and that freedom you know i mean actually the 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 loudspeaker rhythm that was for that was the track behind first time and uh and popcorns the system that was recorded on an airplane you know i mean like the original idea was was just done on an airplane sitting you know on the tray table so yeah i mean i, I really think it's a unique 
thing that we are able to make music kind of wherever we are, you know, if, if, if we have an, a laptop. Um, and so I try to take advantage of that rather than confine myself to say something that has to be in a studio context. So you mentioned Vibes Cartel before. I don't know if all of you guys are familiar with him. He's probably the most influential dancehall artist of the past, whatever, five to ten years. So you mentioned you had recorded the first track over the internet, but then you ended up going to Jamaica and actually working with him in the studio, and you ended up producing his whole album, which I think is quite an uncommon thing in dancehall to do anyway, just produce an entire album, and then for you to not come from that scene and obviously only haven't worked with him over the internet, how exactly did that happen? Yeah, I mean, as I said, I mean, it was it was a bit of a fortuitous random thing, but, you know, based on the strength of your love, I had made plans to, to, to go down to Kingston to record a bit more. And so I got in the studio with Cartel and I think I brought three or four tracks for him to record on and... He works incredibly quickly. I mean, it's it's pretty. It's quickly. How long does a song like this take to come together? I'm, I For mean, it, it's I've never heard of anything this quick, or 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 work with anyone, but even heard of anything. And the way it would usually work is I, I show up with with the music. I don't play him twenty beats, and he picks three. I play him four beats, and he records on all four. So generally, he will sit down in a chair. The, the track's already loaded up in Pro Tools, and the lights go down, the mic is turned on, he's got no pen and paper, and the first time he hears the song, the record button is already pushed on the mic, and so he's just, maybe for the first 10 or 15 minutes, he's just listening back, and he's kind of starting to, like, not mumble, but kind of hum, and just kind of make <laughs> guttural sort of sounds and find cadences and melody ideas. And, you know, within about 10 or 15 minutes, he's, and, and, and I should say, he'll, he'll tell the engineer, like, keep that little bit or keep that little bit, even though, you know, it's just like this half, a nonverbal sort of thing. And, and so that'll be saved and muted. And those are kind of his guide reference points when he feels like he found something quite good. And so then within 10 or 15 minutes, he's now recording words onto the track and, you know, Within an hour, maybe an hour and a half, the song is completely written, completely recorded. He's recorded his doubles, his ad libs. I mean, it's just, it's, it's unbelievable. And I, I think it's, I mean, he, he's an incredibly hardworking entertainer. I mean, I think he probably is recording like 15 songs a week for years, if not for over a decade. And so he's definitely done like three or four thousand songs or more. So he's really honed something. And obviously he has a, this deep talent. So, you know, I think when I went down there that first time, we, we did three or four songs in one or two nights. And at the end of it, he kind of said, like, you know, I think we made a mini album. And I don't think prior to that trip or anything, I was I would dream like, oh, yeah, I should produce a, a Vibes Cartel album. Like, that kind of was outside the, the realm of what might be possible. So I don't even think I imagined that. But when he said that, I was kind of like, and, you know, we, and we had been getting along well and it felt like a good creative connection but i was like well what do you think i don't know maybe we should do like an album and he was like definitely we should definitely try to do that so you know then it, it took about a year but i would go down maybe th uh four or five times over a course of, of the next year and i would bring him three or four songs every time yeah. so 
it's three days of tracking him down and then 30 minutes of recording. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I definitely spent, you know, days in, in Kingston just kind of waiting <laughs> where he would be like, yeah, it's, uh, 8 p.m. tonight. We're good. And then at eight, he's like 10. Yeah. We're good at 10. Yeah. We're good at midnight, you know, and then he never, <laughs> he never shows up. So it was really, you know, it, it was a certain amount of patience and, uh, and waiting, but I kind of knew that that was part of the deal. So it wasn't, uh, so bad, but yeah, once we got in the studio, it was just like unbelievable. So apart from the waiting, which I think everybody's familiar with, who's ever been to Jamaica before, uh, can you tell us a bit more about how it's like coming there? I mean, the place is pretty special, obviously, uh, the role that music plays in the country is incredible, probably unlike anywhere else in the world. So maybe you can tell us a bit more. How is it like, like touching down for the first time? Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I didn't completely know what to expect the first time. At this point, I've, I've, I've been lucky enough to go to many studios and meet a lot of different people in the business, uh, vocalists and producers and everything, and, and, and to go to a lot of parties and, and see sound systems and everything. And yeah, I mean, to me, it's, it's unbelievable. Like this island that has, I think about three million people, just like the number of studios and successful artists per capita. And that, that particularly that has like such an international reach. I don't know if there's another place in the world that kind of has anything similar. So it is, it is very special to be able to, to, to work with artists that come from that culture because music is such a deeply ingrained part of, of, uh, or there's such a, a deep history there. So now you mentioned there's a lot of successful artists there. Um, at the same time, the industry I think is struggling. Um, it's, pretty hard for like artists to create substantial revenue just because it's a small island and it's kind of hard to cross over internationally in the way obviously people don't buy records anymore and i think reggae suffered probably more from that than any other genre but you at the same time are pretty successful in what you do and seem to be able to make a living so why do you think that is well well i think maybe i'm not totally sure but maybe i have a bit of a benefit from not having been deeply involved in the, the dance hall business as it has been hist historically structured, you know, I mean, there's different labels like VP and, and then, you know, in the early two thousands, a lot of us or international major labels were signing, um, artists like elephant man and, and, uh, beanie man and other artists to big kind of international deals that would give them a big push internationally. Um, but with, you know, Unfortunately, like say in the U.S., dance hall has a pretty limited ability to reach uh, radio, you know, major radio, because for whatever reason, New York, Hartford, Boston, and uh, maybe Atlanta and Miami are kind of like the main radio markets, but a lot of the country is shut out or, or shuts out dance hall. So it does make it a bit harder, and, and there maybe there becomes a chicken and the egg thing where A&Rs at majors are thinking well, we, we shouldn't invest in this because the radio is, uh, the radio potential is limited and therefore the sales potential is limited at the same time. You know, the, the radio people are probably seeing like, Oh, the labels aren't really pushing this. So we shouldn't really go out on a limb and, and, and try to see what this track can do. But I mean, in terms of what I've been doing and so far <laughs> on the business side, I just think, you know, there is a huge demand and a huge love of, and appreciation of this music around the world. And so given that the, the music industry as it's been known to exist is kind of crumbling, 
I think it's a good time to be like a disruptor and try to find new ways, whether it's new revenue streams or just new ways to present the music to different different people who might not be core kind of core market dance hall fans. So one of the problems obviously that this scene is facing is some of the lyrical content. Um <laughs> And just because it's very specific to uh, the culture, I guess. And you coming from a totally different culture, how did you find relating to some of the things that an artist like Cartel talks about in his lyrics, like whatever bleaching or certain views on sexuality that are very, very far away from, I think, the kind of people that you would be dealing with here in New York? Um, how did you find dealing with this sort of conflict or this sort of contrast? Yeah, well, I mean... A couple of things, just generally as a producer who's not usually writing lyrics, you know, it's always interesting because when you collaborate with someone, you know, you're turning over or you're giving up a certain amount of control. And particularly if you make the music and someone else is writing the lyrics, you know, wh whether it's a, a pop song or a dancehall song or, or a rap song or anything else, I mean, you know, does everything that rapper said on your beat does that speak to you directly or to your experience or or just do you are you 100% behind every word that was said or every thought that was put out there so it's an interesting it's an interesting aspect of being a producer you know um but with respect to, to cartel say or, or working with dancehall artists you know i mean i feel like pretty good about the messages he's sharing like say on kingston story i mean it's a it's a wide range of, of songs some of it's kind of separation stuff some of it's like definitely for the club and parties and our go-go wine is kind of a song for the dancers and you know i mean I, just to watch that music kind of have a life you know i think i feel i can feel good about it i mean there, there's another track on the album called half on a baby and you know it, it's amazing when you put out music into the world all sorts of things will happen that you could never possibly anticipated so that song for some strange reason really took hold in the bronx and in new york and not even with the the core dance hall crowd but actually with more of a, a, a latino crowd and there's this dance called the bronx wine which is like huge with like 15 year old kids in in, in the bronx and in brooklyn and all around new york Can you show it to us <laughs> no, no, sir. Um, but, you know, go on YouTube and, and, and type in Bronx Wine. I mean, with that song, for example, and, and in terms of kind of new revenue streams and, and, and working in this business, and, and again, we didn't plan for this, but like every day for the last year, there's like 10 to 20 people uploading videos of themselves in front of their webcams doing the, the Bronx Wine. So that even though we didn't do a video for that song, And even though we didn't get to fully push it as a single the way we would have liked, you know, it just got picked up by these kids. And, you know, we, 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 we monetize all these videos and that's okay. But it, more importantly, it kind of made the song become one of the best selling. I think it's been like the best selling cartel song in the U.S. for like the last five months. And that's just through this kind of very viral organic development. So how important is youtube as a revenue source for you running a label like how does mixpack make money i mean obviously everyone knows nobody's buying records anymore there's some sales digital sales but this can't possibly be enough money to make a living off of it so how important is something like youtube and how have you been engaging with this platform as an yeah, entrepreneur I mean, it, it's interesting and it kind of 
fell into our laps or it definitely, you know, just, um, exploded without us planning to like, okay, let's figure out how to monetize YouTube. We just kind of recognize, I mean, cartel is such a big name and he's, he's, uh, like his total all cartel videos on YouTube. It's, it's gotta be well over a hundred million sort of views, you know? And so we were recognizing that people were posting the songs and the reposting the videos. And at a certain point we became kind of content partners with YouTube. And so it, it's been, it's been eye opening because, you know, we, we do actually make pretty good money on sales, say with the cartel album. And that's kind of a continuing, you know, monthly revenue stream for us, which is great. But then it's just been amazing because when we invested money in that project and, and put the album out, we didn't have YouTube in mind, but actually we, we make, you know, I don't know, I'd, I'd say like thousands of dollars a month on cartel related YouTube revenue, you know? And so it is important. And, and, and now that we've seen that it's, it's shifting, you know, some of the business decisions we're making in terms of saying, okay, yeah, we can afford to go to Kingston and shoot a music video because this, you know, traditionally a music video is an expense that a label makes and it's a marketing expense and you hope to make it back in sales. But, um, with what we've got going with YouTube now, it's, it's actually not, a. I mean, ideally it is serving a marketing function, but it's, it's actually like a product to be consumed essentially. And, and, and so ideally it's going to at least pay for itself, if not become a, a source of its own, you know, profit. So business aside, um, the fact that you put out a proper album, which is a rarity in Jamaica with this type of music, um, that's available. Um, but from a creative perspective, um, how did you approach making an album? I mean, you mentioned the first four records more or less came, came about as an accident and weren't planned to be for, for an album, but was there any sort of concept to the record? Any, any sort of like overarching theme that you tried to give it to it? It was the first time for you, right? Producing a full on album. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was the first time. I mean, I wouldn't say there was a complete overarching concept. I mean, definitely I recognize that most, I mean, dance hall, the, the, the business side of the dance hall business is very much around rhythms and rhythm releases and singles. So a lot of times a, a big artist album is, is pretty much like a collection of their biggest hits over the last two or three years, plus a couple new, a new song. So I, I, I thought, you know, why, why isn't someone You know, and, and it has happened, but why, generally speaking, why hasn't there been a focus on albums? And, and maybe you could make a bigger impact. That was kind of the, the idea. Um, because, you know, particularly with, with the internet, you know, collecting the singles from the last few years, you know, it's much more likely that a lot more people have heard those songs. So if you buy that album, you're very familiar with the music already. So I just thought it might be an interesting thing where we could, really just surprise everyone. I mean, Cartel was still putting out singles while we were making the, the record. And so he's very, very much, um, staying relevant and, and pretty much staying on top of the, the dance hall industry. But like, let's, let's show like a greater body of work. And, you know, so I, I really approached it as something like, how can we showcase Cartel's talents in a very, uh, well put together or, you know, try to do a well put together sort of array of songs with, with a, with a kind of an arc to it. Um, but there wasn't, it wasn't like a total concept album in terms of it, it's all about this. I mean, I think if anything, the concept was let's do an album, which was almost conceptual in the dance hall context. Yeah. So you're now working on Popcorn's album as well, right? I am. Yeah. So 
this, the, the cartel album was pretty much me on production throughout. And so for this one, it's more, I'm taking more of a, uh, executive producer role. I am producing a bunch of tracks on the record, but, um, double Dutch, who's a, who's a mixed back artist is doing some really great work and has a bunch of songs on it. And then we have, uh, a number of Jamaican producers and Jew Blacks and uh, Jamie Young Vibes and then Audi Instrumentals. So it's 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 not completely the same sort of affair in terms of how the album's coming together, but I'm really excited to... I think we've done maybe 14 or 15 songs, and I'm hoping it'll be ready for the fall. But yeah, and that, and that should be another mixed back record as well. How's he like in the studio? How's, how's it working with him? It's great. I mean... I first met him when I was making Kingston Stories. Um, he kind of came up in Cartel's crew. And so he would come around the studio sometimes. And uh, so we, we had that connection. And then we've I think we've done three singles together um, since then. And, yeah, I mean, he he's... Every artist is different. And I think, you know, like like I mentioned with with the system, you know, he really surprised me with that with with the content and direction he took that in and uh and I'd, i'd say the same goes for the album i mean i really think he writes amazing pop songs you know very much in a dancehall context but i feel like he has a lot of i mean he already has but i was gonna say he has a lot of ability to cross over i mean he i think he has already landed in the the billboard hot 100 charts which again is kind of hard for a dancehall artist to do in the u.s so that shows something but also i think um another interesting thing is a lot of the the biggest names in dance hall are a bit older and and i kind of feel like that is because there used to be more money in, in the dance hall business coming in from say u.s labels and so there was more marketing dollars to big uh, to build up those names and then as that money has dried up those people kind of keep the crowns that they have so to speak And there's really no room to build up new younger artists. And so he's kind of a rare exception, in my opinion. Um, I think he's maybe 23 or 24 years old. And he's kind of one of the biggest names in the world in terms of dance hall. So I think it's it's really refreshing that there's like a new voice speaking for a new generation. And so I think he has a lot of potential to push things kind of further in a, in a cool way that hasn't been done. Now, through you working with Cartel, I think you kind of change the sound a lot and maybe open it up to a bit more of an international audience. Like a lot of the stuff he does these days is in a way influenced by the work that you guys did together. Uh, so you developed some sort of producer-artist relationship. So when he went to jail, um, just maybe for, the, for those of you who don't know, he's currently in jail on murder charges. How did you react to that? I mean, it's obviously crazy situation um how did that feel like for you not knowing what exactly was going on yeah i mean when when i first heard he was arrested you know i didn't hear the, the charges or anything and actually over the course of making our album he had been uh arrested and kind of held without charges and I'm, i wouldn't say i'm an expert on the jamaican justice system but that initial time you know he was wanted for to they, they asked him to come in for questioning and then they said we're going to hold you for 24 hours then they said we're going to hold you for a week and then they you know it was two weeks and after two and a half weeks they kind of let him go no charges and you know at least with respect comparing that to the u.s justice system that seemed a bit odd and so when i first heard he was arrested again i was actually we were about seven or eight days away from shooting the half on a baby video the second 
that was going to be the second single for the for the album and so i kind of just assumed oh he's just been picked up and i'll be held for a little bit and and released and it's probably no big deal so then once i heard there was murder charges obviously i was shocked i mean you know working with him that's the last thing i think we <laughs> could possibly expect i mean i think that, that pretty much goes for most people i know but you know but you know I'd, I'd like to to assume that he's innocent until proven guilty and again with the jamaican justice system i think it's been about two and a half years a little bit over that that he's been locked up with no trial and no charges so you know one wonders or one hears like that he offended the wrong person and they're gonna just you know hold him kind of teach him a lesson and not charge him and so yeah i just i just want to presume that he he was not actually involved in any of that and uh hope for the best have you been in touch with him since um obviously when someone's locked up it's a bit hard to be well in touch he still manages to release like whatever a couple of songs per week even though some of the material might be old but he seems to uh, allegedly allegedly yeah uh, yeah th there's been allegations that he's recorded in prison but he has refuted those um i have been able to talk with people close with him so in that way communicate on certain business stuff that we're dealing with and You know, he he basically has communicated that he's keeping his head up and doing all right. But yeah, not a lot of direct communication. So a lot of your music, obviously, there's, there's a Jamaican influence. Um, there's a, some of your early releases on Mixpack had a lot of remixes by European producers. Um, you have a Japanese band on your label. Um, how much do you think, how much of New York is in your music? Is that to any importance for you or is it just a place where you happen to live and happen to have a family but don't really care that much beyond that yeah no i mean i, I don't know what what a listener would say but for me you know I, like i i love listening to uh and, and have been for years Funkmaster flex you know and just it's such a a rare thing at least in the u.s to have a radio dj that has that much flexibility with what he plays flexibility there you go yeah <laughs> um and, and and so you know just just that there's hip-hop obviously was born in new york and and still has has a strong vibe and then also you know new york has a really big caribbean community jamaican community and i think that that's definitely been influential but you know i think just just the concrete this the, the architecture and, and the vibe itself in, in ways that i probably don't even understand but yeah You know, I, I definitely one thing I've taken is that music can sound different in different locations. You know, I, I, I don't know that I could describe it that well, but definitely hearing certain songs in Kingston, it kind of comes with a feeling of what what I'm experiencing, what I'm seeing, who I'm with. And, and, and the same would go with New York and pretty much anywhere. But, you know, so being in New York and making music, I'm sure that's had a big impact. So you mentioned your hip-hop influence. You recently worked on an album by a relatively well-known rapper. Um, so what's it like working with your childhood hero? <laughs> oh, you know, yeah, it was, I think, when I when I heard, uh, basically Diplo brought me in on this project, and when I heard who it was, he initially said, you know, I want to partner with you, bring you in on this project, but I can't tell you who it is. <laughs> You're like, like, oh, yeah, great. Yeah, I was like, sounds good. Yeah. Um, but... Yeah, no, uh, when, when he eventually told me who it was, I mean, that was kind of amazing because definitely I grew up listening to Snoop. And uh, and then definitely like the first day we were in the studio, Snoop had his wife there. And, you know, it was just like 
playing him tracks and watching him just kind of like bang his head to something I made, you know, five days before. It was kind of a surreal experience, but you know, then obviously we, we had to get to work and, uh, yeah, it was, it was a, just a, a pure pleasure working with him. Did you make the music specifically for that? Like <coughs> with the idea in mind that you now need to produce a reggae album for Snoop Dogg or was that stuff that you had already done before and just thought could work well on this, on this album? Yeah, no, I think pretty much every single thing I did for the album was done for this album. I think Diplo basically brought me in and said, Snoop is wanting to do a, uh, like the director was essentially Snoop is wanting to do an album recorded in Jamaica that's kind of inspired by the, a, a wide range of Jamaican music. So before I, before I got to Jamaica, I probably made, I don't know, 20, 20 tracks with a lot of different types of ideas. So how do you feel about, well, let's, let me put it that way. There's quite a few people who feel like he shouldn't be doing that. And it's not real reggae and it's disrespectful to the culture where it comes from. Um, and regardless of whether he did a good job on, on that album or not as a vocalist, but he basically doesn't have to write to adopt certain like symbols, images and, and play around with this sort of terminology and, and, and symbolism that means quite a lot to a few people, even on a religious level. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, obviously I, I can recognize that it could be complicated ground to tread, but I felt like, you know, obviously aside from just making the music, I got to spend a lot of time with Snoop and, and, and he really shared the story of why he wanted to make this record. And it felt like a very genuine sort of impulse just, um, and, and, and essentially what he shared, which he's said many other times publicly is, is, you know, he, he's getting to a certain point in his life where he really wants to um, add to his legacy with a different kind of spirit and content in the music. And, you know, I, I, I personally wouldn't fault him for wanting to make music inspired by Jamaican music and collaborating with, with different artists in Jamaica. So I don't know. I, I, I think the main thing is or, or the way I would look at something like that, whether it was his project or someone else is what, what kind of attitude is this person bringing to this and, and, you know, are they sincere in what they say they want to do? And he really felt like he was on something like a spiritual journey. And so, you know, I, I, I felt, you know, honored to be a part of that process. So how was it like working with a producer like Diplo in the studio who I think takes a lot of times will take more of a curator role and like put together people who we believe would work amazingly well together <coughs> in the studio. And it's, a lot of times it's not quite clear what he did on the beat and then some beats he makes by himself. So how exactly was the kind of collaboration between you and him? Yeah, I mean, well, he's he's got a great musical mind, great producer, probably one of the hardest working people I've come across in this business. I mean, it, it's pretty amazing. He's probably on tour 200 to 300 days a year and yet he really is making time to go into the studio like in any country or any city he's in. But yeah, I mean, in the studio, like over the course of the, the, the work we did here, you know, some of the songs are a hundred percent from his mind and his, his, uh, vision and other songs are collaborations between all the producers. And then, you know, like some of these songs are, there were more things that I brought to the table, but then he said, Hey, what if we switch the beat up like this? Or, you know, so I mean, I, f I feel like he's just a very, you know, because he's, he's both a producer, a label owner and just, kind of a cultural figure in a way. So he's kind of hitting different projects from different angles, but 
you know, it, it, it was definitely a great experience to get to see him work and to collaborate with him and, and just to see his mind. I mean, I think being a DJ can be a real asset to a producer. I mean, depending on the music you make, but I think he has a real intuitive sense of what's going to work. And, you know, it might be, Hey, wait, we need to speed this track up 10 BPM so we can play it in this context in the club, that sort of thing where I think a lot of producers might not have that relationship, but, uh, yeah, I mean, he, he, he's a great producer, so I don't know that he always gets enough credit for that. How does it feel like as a, if you put something out on Mixpack, you make a beat, record vocals, um, with whatever, work on the arrangement, mix it, and put it out on your own label, so you have full control. In a situation like this, where you work on a major label record with other producers, other people might have different opinions, um, how does it feel like hearing your music, which is your music in a way, but then again, it's also other people's music, and might not sound exactly like your vision was like when you started out making that track? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting aspect of kind of the the business dictating certain creative stuff. I mean, yeah, like you say, when I when I do something on Mixback, it's pretty much something that I have a great amount of control over. I mean, if I'm working with a vocalist, I'm still, you know, I don't tell the vocalist what to say, well, yeah. you know, and that sort of thing. But you could always not release it. <laughs> that has happened. <laughs> But, you know, yeah, I mean, sometimes with a vocalist, we will have a conversation like, I think the song could be about this you know, whether it's Cartel or Popcorn or someone else. But a lot of times, and probably the majority, I'm kind of letting the, the vocalist dictate that to me. But, you know, I, I guess it's you have to ask yourself what you want out of your own creative energy and output. I mean, if you are working in a major label context, there's many different ways it goes down. But, you know, there's A&Rs who work for the label. And a lot of times A&Rs, say, in, in, the, in the rap world, are looking for beats um, then you have artist managers who might bring the beat in and you might have a, have a beat that in your mind was kind of like a sketch of the idea and it gets to the rapper and the next thing you know, you hear it and it's released and you were like, but I was going to change the outro or something like that, you know, or I would have flipped it a little different or just mixed it differently. Um, so, you know, I, I guess you have to be aware of what kind of game you're playing and are you comfortable in that role, like seeding some control And, you know, I, I, I guess it's, it's like very much a case by case basis. And also you might not realize that you don't, <laughs> that you have an issue with it until it's too late. Um, so it's definitely a learning thing in terms of, you know, it's a very personal thing that you have to learn your own relationship with it. Is that something that you see yourself doing in the future? Like doing the next Rihanna album or something like that? Or would you rather, uh, produce rhythms and record artists that you like? Or what's the kind of vision for? moving forward yeah i mean I, i i definitely want to keep working with artists that i really admire um that i personally kind of have an affinity for and have like an emotional kind of response to but that's not to say that i wouldn't want to work with a rihanna or someone like that i mean i'm interested in in working with you know at the highest level essentially not not financially but just just you know as a producer who wants to work with vocalists and songwriters you know It's a, it's a great opportunity to be able to work with the best songwriters, quote unquote, or the, the best singers, you know, with great voices, that sort of thing. So, I mean, I, I'm kind of essentially actively kind of pursuing both, you know, a lot of stuff like I'm doing this popcorn record. Um, at the same time, we're, we're bringing in some pretty major rappers to do guest verses on the popcorn record, but we do have a lot of control over that. 
and, and, and yet at the same time, yeah, I have a bunch of different things kind of in motion with major labels that, you know, I'm not gonna assume will all, you know, work out well, but, um, that I'm, that I'm happy to be pursuing that as well. Um, but really, yeah, I think if I was just in one side of that, only doing kind of mixed back stuff or only doing major label stuff, I don't think that that would be kind of enough for me. And I think by doing kind of all of it or different, different types of projects with different levels of control or input, it kind of serves my different areas of interests. So give a huge round of applause for Dre Skull. Hey, this is Jordan Rothline again. Thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom. Before you go, I just wanted to take a minute to tell you a little bit about the Red Bull Music Academy. The whole thing is a world-traveling series of music workshops and events. If you want to find out more, check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com. Also, if you liked what you heard on this podcast and you're not already subscribed, please go for it and consider rating us while you're at it. It really helps other people discover the podcast. Finally, there's a whole world of other great music programming like this to check out at redbullradio.com. That's all for now. Thanks for listening. <laughs>